to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. We are in Daniel um, chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, and then finishing up in chapter 12. Um, I told several people that um, a few years back, we had, uh, when we were in Tahlequah, I taught through systematic theology, and um, in that period of teaching through systematic theology, we looked at, um, we were looking at man's depravity, and uh, we spent maybe about eight weeks, maybe ten weeks, looking at uh, total corruption and uh, all the different levels of man's depravity, and then Christ's work in the middle of that, and, and I didn't notice it at first, but every day I was reading books and books and all these brilliant people, all these scholars and theologians over the centuries of time, and just in, immersed in the Bible, seeing all these places, and after four weeks or something, or six weeks or eight weeks, it was just a true spiritual depression. It was just just a depression that had set in that I didn't even realize because I was reading so much about man's depravity. And so um, there was always hope there. The gospel's good news, but when you immerse yourself in that, you're more aware of it around. And so in Daniel, we've kind of taken that path, and you may feel that. And so I know, <clears throat> I know Sujin had said to me last week, said, uh, said man, right, I'm ready for us to be out of Daniel also. I've enjoyed it, but I'm ready. And I was like, man, it's like almost we just want to stand up and stretch and uh, just be ready to get out of the book of Daniel as rewarding as it's been. So I hope that you've enjoyed it. I hope that uh, you've got a lot out of it. Um, let me um, read um, a little bit uh, about what we're going to uh, cover and what we're going to see. I'm just going to bring up some things as far as um, I want to give you first uh, the three areas that we're going to cover, and then I'm going to uh, kind of give you some uh, big survey information on the, the topics that we're going to be hitting on, because we can't go in depth on these, these big topics, but you've heard of these. And so first of all, what we're going to cover today in finishing up is um, in chapter 11, Antiochus Epiphanes. And so everyone kind of agrees that this, this is all pointing to in this, in this revelation from God, this vision from God, that it's pointing to this, this very demonic, powerful guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek commander. And then we're going to move on from that to where a lot of people believe there's a break in chapter 36 to where it begins to talk about a separate person. And we're going, you're going, we're going to go into that, and, and I believe that is the future Antichrist. And so that right there brings up a lot for a lot of people, like, oh, what is this guy going to look like? Who is this? Time periods, and then if you know your eschatology, you're wondering uh, different areas of that. We're going to look at that secondly, and the Antichrist. And then third, going and covering chapter 12. Um, and we're going to go quickly through that and bring out a couple of big points. In each one of these, I could, it's amazing to see historically, just on Antiochus, how much information is out there that lines up incredibly through these kind of blurry words in Scripture. And then when you put historical facts and events, it just lines up perfectly. Um, and 
I, I could have spent a lot of time on that. It would have probably been interesting, but, but I wanted to bring out not, not just historical facts, but what is God doing? What's the purpose? So we're only going to hit on three or four main things on Antiochus because God was screaming this to Daniel to say, hey, Israel, I care about you. I see what's happening, and I'm telling you, it's going to be difficult coming. This guy's going to come. He's going to persecute you. It's going to be extremely difficult. Many are going to turn. Many are going to be killed over and over. You're going to be persecuted, but I'm with you. I see this happening, and I am going to redeem some of my people out of that. And so that's a difficult thing. Um, we're going to see that first. But these big topics, let's, let's talk about rapture. So the, the word rapture. So first of all, the timing of the rapture. Um, researchers um, have found um, in, in all kinds of surveys and beliefs and uh, surveys and, and results on the timing of the rapture. People have a very um, different view on the, the timing of the rapture. Also, the nature of the Antichrist. We're going to look at that. And then also the, the millennial kingdom. So some of you right away, you're going, oh, this is stuff I love to read into. So the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. So first of all, with the rapture, um, about one-third or 36% of Protestant pastors um, believe in the kind of pre-tribulation rapture familiar to U.S. culture. So what do I mean that's familiar to U.S. culture? Anyone heard of the Left Behind series? Series? If you haven't, maybe you've been left behind. So Jerry, uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, um, some guys that wrote the Left Behind series, and, and then it became a movie, and then it became clothing, and then it became, you know, you could decorate your house with it. And so um, it became very popular. So about a third, 36% of Protestant pastors align with that and believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, meaning Jesus will come back and pull out his bride, his people, before any kind of tribulation happens, right? So 25% say the rapture is not literal. That when you read those verses, it's kind of symbolic, and it's not going to be literally people coming out of the grave and meeting Jesus in the air like they would use those scriptures to say that. 25% say that's not literal. 18% um, think the rapture happens after the tribulation. So now you have post-tribulation. The church goes through it. They go through the difficulty, Antichrist, all the crazy events that's going to happen, it's going to get bad, bad, bad. And then Christ is going to come and pull out his church. And at that time, it's, it's not only, they would, most people that would do a post-tribulation rapture would also believe that at that time, it's Christ's second rule and reign at that point. So it's also, uh, that, that's that post-mill view. So um, 4% think that um, it will occur during the tribulation. Um, but, but so you have different views on that. Also, let's move on to the Antichrist. So about half, 49%, say that Antichrist is a figure who will arise in the future, that there will be a literal person who will rise in the future. 49% of Protestant theologians and pastors would say that. 12% say that there is no individual Antichrist. That it, that's not literal. It's not going to be one person. It's, it's just symbolically talking about evil in this world. There's, there's evil worldly leaders. And they would use those verses in 1 John that talk about that, that say there's many Antichrists among us. So we'll go into that a little bit. 14% um, that say that he is just a personification of evil. 6% um, say the Antichrist has already been here. So you can go home and talk about which guy it was, probably usually a U.S. president or someone like that. So the, the reformers actually thought it was the pope. So it's funny in America, we, you know, like, we're over here, we're 4% of the world's population, and like every election cycle, we always go, it's that guy, it's got to be that guy, it's him. And so we do that. And so um, now let's look at the millennial kingdom. 
the 1,000-year reign of Christ. So um, there's a lot of disagreement on this also. About 48% believe in premillennialism. So let, let's pull out your brains. You've heard of these pre-mill, all-mill, and post-mill, right? So pre meaning that um, Christ will come before his millennial reign and, and that he would have this 1,000 years, a literal years reigning on the earth, um, and that when he comes on the earth, and that the rapture would happen before that pre, um, that, so the pre-meaning, he would come and do that before the millennial kingdom is set up. One-third, 31%, believe in, the, in all, millennial, all millennialism, um, the view that it's not a literal thousand years, but when Christ came and died on the cross and resurrected, since that time he resurrected, like right now for us, we have been living out the kingdom. It's not 1,000 years, hopefully, because we're at you know, 2021, but for, for this time period of the church, we are living out the kingdom of God. And they would use the verses that Jesus has said, the kingdom is near, the kingdom is here. And so we, we all do agree, like I agree, that the kingdom is here, but just not yet fully. Like I believe it's going to be fully consummated later. So we want to have that mentality that the kingdom of God is here. It's in our hearts. So we agree with that end. But, but would you say that there's not going to be another time period when it's just fully and so we would have um, some disagreements there. Um, one in 10, about 11% believe in post-millennialism. There's a lot of L's in that. Um, the view that as the gospel spreads, so you, you, this may be where a lot of you fall, as the gospel spreads, the world's going to get better and better and better. The gospel's going to spread, and, and then the world's getting better and better and better and better. Some people have a really hard time seeing that and believing that, right? So only 11% believe in that. So those are three big things that all come in, in Daniel 11 and 12. Um, so let's look at this first section um, in Daniel 11, uh, verses 21 through 35. And again, this is on Antiochus. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. It says, In this place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. So what we're going to see about this guy, Antiochus, is that God is giving this warning. He's going to be this new leader that's going to come on the scenes. And if, if you've been with us in the book of Daniel, we saw early on in, chapter, in the earliest chapters that God gave some visions to um, some different leaders. So, and he gave this vision of this big statue. And, and it was going to be these four kingdoms that were going to come. And then next, God gave a, a vision of these four beasts. And we knew that those the, the, the statue was made up of four kingdoms and that there were four beasts, and they represented, represented Babylon, which had come in and taken Israel captive. And then secondly, you're going to have the Medo-Persians that were going to come in. And then you're going to have Alexander the Great come in. So Greece um, come in and set up shop. And we're at the end of that now. And now the last and the, the biggest one would be Rome. And so we're kind of at that point. So Rome's obviously ruling and stuff as Jesus is coming on the scene. And so um, as, as we get to this point... God is warning them, saying, there's going to be one that's going to come in the midst of those four kingdoms 
from Greece, and this Antiochus is going to be one of the most evil men and, and the most destructive men for you specifically, Israel. Um, he says that in that very first section there, this contemptible person. He's going to be killing tens of thousands. He will attempt to even dethrone Yahweh from Israel. He will try to go into Jerusalem several times and do different things to remove Yahweh from being the central aspect of worship. Um, so we see some, some scary things. Look in verse 22 there. It says, armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken. So that we read that and we just go, oh man, that's kind of cool. What if this was to us? What if on everyone's Twitter and everyone's um, news app and just spreading across as you go to work, as you wake up the next morning, the papers, there's been news that a, that a country is coming to, to wipe us out. Not, not go to war with us, wipe us away. Like, we would have a problem. Like, all of a sudden, this matters, right? This is the word that's coming to um, Daniel for the people of Israel. And they're already, they've already been wiped out and, and taken away and taken away as captives and taken away. And now, over some time, some kings have let some more captives go back to Israel, but yet Daniel is still in, in Babylon. And so that, that would matter a lot. And so when we read the Bible, don't, don't just read over it and, and look for your, your quickest you know, bullet points of practical living. Put yourself in the position, what was that like for Daniel? What was it like to have families and children knowing, are they coming in two years or five or ten before we're utterly swept away? And not only us, other nations. And then also, like I brought up a couple weeks ago, are you okay with that view of God? Do you have a category for God that not only does God know that's going to happen, that God is sometimes passively allowing that to happen as, as a form of discipline because of sin? Or God is actively doing things to help that to happen. Are, are you okay with a, a view of God in that way? You go, man, I don't, does God really actively do that? Man, the, the worst crime and atrocity ever, Jesus, God himself, dying on the cross, God did that. That was God who set his son up. Acts tells us, this was your plan, God. You're the one who set up these kings and these leaders because, and these people that were going to rise up against him because the plan was for him to suffer and die. It had to happen. So do you have a category for God? We do for Jesus, but not if it means suffering for us in any way, right? Or especially suffering in severe ways. So just know that this was rough news for them. Um, so he's a fearful tyrant. He's greedy. He's an evil man. He understood people and power. And what he did is he went around to these small nations, and he understood quickly that if I have a lot of money and riches, um, all these other leaders around the world, if I, if I gather the riches and I make deals with them, they will be loyal to me in five years, in, in later times and stuff. And so he, he was very wise, and that's what it said. He did things that his fathers didn't do and his father's fathers didn't do. Um, he also, this is very significant for Israel specifically. Look in verses 25 through 28. He makes this treaty. So it's Antiochus and Ptolemy. They're the guys that are being spoken of here. It says in verse 27, As for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. So we, we see this um, picture here of two kings coming. And so we know the king of the south, Ptolemy, that we looked at last week, um, and then Antiochus IV. Um, 
they are going to make a treaty with one another, both just being evil and lying. They're not going to stick to the treaty. They're going to break the treaty and break, break the, the, the agreement. And so he does that repeatedly. Um, and then in verse 29, um, look at this. It says, At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. In verse 30, For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. And so what happens there at Kittim, Kittim is the little island that we know as Cyprus now. And so think of, on, on a map, I should have put one up for this. So you've got um, Rome over here, Italy, right? Then you've got the little boot, and then you've got Greece. And then you've got Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea, the little island. And then you've got um, um, Jerusalem. Up to the north, Syria is where um, Antiochus is going to come down through the south to attack Egypt in, in the south. And as he does that, he's going to attack Egypt four days out, four days before they're about to attack Alexandria, Egypt. Um, this guy named Gaius, this commander, sets up, and he shows up with a letter to Antiochus, this, this, this destructive guy, and says, if you go on towards Alexandria, your, your, your powers from the north, you're going to war against Rome. So Rome's sitting over here. Rome's a toddler at this point. Powerful Rome is not the huge world power yet. They're a little toddler at this point, but they're already going, hey, you probably don't want to mess with me. And so Antiochus says, um, I think that I'll back out of this. So he gets ticked. In fact, like this Gaius guy, the story goes um, that he drew in a circle in the sand around him and said, you have to give us your answer. Are you going to go on to attack Egypt or are you going to withdraw and go home? And so he embarrassingly and cowardly and humbly steps back and says, I guess we're going home. So now he's angry and ticked off. And so what do you do when you're coming from the south, Alexandria, Egypt, and you're going through Palestine? You go in just kicking every dog that you can see. So he goes and destroys tens of thousands of people in, in Jerusalem again just because he's angry and embarrassed because Rome had stepped up and said, you're not going to go in as the north and take over the south again. And so this guy, just, just a horrible guy. Um, and it says there in 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offerings. And he shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So here's the first time we're hearing this term, the abomination that makes desolate. And so as he goes back through Palestine and through Jerusalem, what happens here is he returns. And so now we, we talked about this, this idea of this evil ruler. Well, what, what gets really bad for Israel is not only are you going to be plundered, but this guy's going to come in and take away your worship. So what Antiochus does is he goes through, um, all Jewish religious practices were banned. In fact, it was punishable by death by this guy if you continue to do any of these things. So um, circumcision, you had a little child, it was time, and they, these, these religious rites for the Jews, you couldn't do circumcision. Do you know how offensive that was to them? Um, possessing or having Old Testament scriptures, temple sacrifices, just regular temple sacrifices, you couldn't do it or you would be either imprisoned or killed. Um, offerings taking uh, some of your animals up for offerings or some of your grain up for offerings, you couldn't do it. It was all shut down. Religious events and activities. So remember the, the Jewish calendar was full of those things. Um, reading of Scripture, all of these forbidden by Antiochus. And then in the month of December, which for them was Chislev, um, in the month of December, I think it was 169, uh, 167, um, he brings in to the temple in Jerusalem, brings in this huge, they don't know if it was a, a huge tall idol statue or if it was just like a, a headpiece, um, 
of Zeus and sets it right where the altar in the temple. The abomination of desolation. So what do you think Jews did when a false god, a false Greek god is now set at the centerpiece of their temple? It's desolate. They clear out. So, they, so here's Daniel years before and Gabriel saying, when the abomination of desolation happens. So that's what Antiochus did. Destroyed worship for them. What was always the goal for the Old Testament so far? Big picture narrative, a people, a promised land. He will be our God and, and we will be his people. And God is going, I've got bad news. It's going to get really, really bad. And so don't just read over those things and think that's not a big deal. Um, this was one of the main reasons for God's warning. In, in verses 32 through 35, this is where most of you guys have probably heard of uh, Hanukkah. So remember we get to December and we're like, what is, what's Hanukkah? It's on my calendar every year. It's on my iPhone. So what happened during those years, there was this man up a little bit about 17 miles north of Jerusalem. His name was Mattathias, and he had five sons. And so his, his, out of his five sons, Judas, Simon, and Jonathan became known as the Maccabees. And so when they see all this going on for a few years, they're like, we're done. This is it. We're going to go attack. And they do an incredible work of bravery. They go in with bravery, and they go in, and they wreck house. So some of the Syrians that were doing things wrong, um, they said, no more. And so they go in, and they, through several little battles, these, it's called the Maccabean Revolt. Um, and, and through that, they run the Syrians out. They cleanse the temple through all their Jewish practices, and they restore um, worship in the temple after about 30 days or something, uh, not 30 days of cleaning and everything, not 30 days of wars, but through all these battles, the Maccabean revolt happens. And then on December 25th, Chislev, the 2025, 20, um, for them in 164, or yeah, 164, they have Hanukkah. So that when you see the celebration of Hanukkah, no Antiochus had been ruling, destroying, and these Jews said no more. This little bitty band of people, and they, and they, they had people coming. So that's what it's talking about. It says um, in verse 33, And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. Many shall join them in, in with their flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white. And so that's the Maccabean revolt. Most people believe that that's what he's talking about specifically in that part of Daniel. Um, so some beautiful things there, but we see that um, that's uh, a difficult leader for Israel to have to put up with. We see in Antiochus a type of Antichrist, a forerunner. So this is for Israel. There's going to be this guy that's coming. I believe, and many scholars believe, that this was that section. And then when you go on through 36 through 45 in chapter 11, it, it's another character that takes the scene. And so I had some things up here um, uh, about, this is a famous picture um, from uh, Luca Cinerelli, um, the deeds of Antichrist. If you remember humanities, so we studied humanities like in second and third grade in Salazar growing up. And so um, you guys probably got it in college. But um, we, so this, is, this was an incredible, I'm joking. And so, um, so you see there, notice in the center of this, so you have all these things going on. There's murderous things going on. There's some angelic things going on, but there's some dark things going back at this temple back here. But then notice elevated right here, that's the Antichrist in the middle. And then 
you have to see him elevated. And so see whispering through? Satan is whispering through. If you notice the sleeve even, that's a picture of, it was, he was purposely showing, that's not um, um, Antichrist's arm, his left arm there. That's Satan with his arm just closely, just, just showing how close. So if you remember that, you probably studied that in humanities. But, so I wanted to bring that out to show um, this is coming from those ideas of like Revelation 13. So let me read, um, as we go into this idea of Antichrist, Revelation 13 um, says this, 4 through 8. And they worship the dragon. So in this section of Scripture, uh, I'd encourage you to go read Revelation 13 all the way through 20 if you want to. But um, Revelation 13, it brings up a, a dragon, which is Satan, and a beast, which is the Antichrist. Dragon, which is Satan, and a beast. And it's showing that the, the, the beast, Antichrist, is being um, informed and controlled by Satan himself. And I'm going to read a couple more scriptures that reveal some people believe that, man, he, he literally um, is going to suffer a mortal wound, the Antichrist, at the end time. It's possibly that he dies, suffers a mortal wound, and is resurrected. Like people believe he may be resurrected. So, it, wow, I mean, when that hits uh, Instagram, I mean, everyone's going to know, right? When, when that news gets out, and he's going to be so charming up to that point that people are already going to be probably uh, misled and, and deceived, and he's gonna, probably going to be at the front end a very peaceful person. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But then if, if it happens that he dies, I mean, who wouldn't be like, man, that's, I mean, that's pretty cool no matter what. Like if we're all like, no, don't, don't everyone like him, but man, I'm going to go and read as much as I can about him. That'll probably be going on with us. And so um, look in Revelation 13. Um, and they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. So the picture here, Satan controlling this person, Antichrist. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So we're going to see that in Daniel also. So we're in Revelation reading this. In Daniel, he's talking about he's going to blaspheme and say some horrible things. Jesus also backs that up and says he's going to blaspheme and say some horrible things about God Almighty. And the beast was given, um, I'm sorry, verse 6, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to, you all right with that? It was allowed to, this is bad, bad times. Things are much worse than they are in Tulsa right now, so horrible, horrible times. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Side note, this is why I believe Christians will go through tribulation. It was allowed to make war on the saints. Looks like tribulation period, That's we haven't been pulled out yet. It's not just for Jews, the saints. It's not talking about Jews. So some people that would have a, a view that you know, the Christians, all of us good Christians are pulled out and that, this, that Jews would be the only ones going through persecution at the end. It's very popular uh, belief. I mean, so what happens here? How do, you, how do you deal with that? So he's allowed to make war on the saints and authority was given over every tribe and people and language and nation. Everyone around the world amazed by this guy, misled by this guy, deceived and impressed by this guy. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world, difficult terms there, in the book of life of the land that was slain. So some book existed before the world was created, and, and the book had names written in it, 
and the name of the book is The Book of Life of the Lamb that was slain, talking about Jesus, and the names were in it before the foundations of the world. Just hard to get around that. That's difficult for us to understand, that, that God was sovereignly, lovingly doing that. So we see this powerful situation where Satan is controlling and involved with Antichrist. I just want you to see that. Um, also, this may be very, very helpful. This was beautiful. So I, I've, I've read lots of stuff, studied different things. My dad was an end times. He loved the end times. He, like, he loves studying those things. Uh, this was really helpful, maybe helpful for you. Instead of thinking of Antichrist as clearly just opposite Christ, or the word Antichrist, right? We would think completely opposite Christ, opposite Christ. Jesus is good and loving and tender and compassionate and always does good. Oh, this guy's going to show up um, and just evil, right? Just immediate evil, opposite. What if it's not that at the first? What if it's alternative to Christ? What if it's more this idea of um, meaning that he, he would be more um, instead of Christ, a good alternative? Look around you in America. We're in Tulsa. Why is everyone so content not to be going and listening to God's Word? Involved in community, sharing life together, letting the gospel drive their life. Because we're all good. It's false Creek, 1984. Bowed my head, prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, did it a couple times. Was baptized three different times. Great youth evangelists come through. But I've been good through my 20s, 30s, 40s. We don't really need church. I just love hunting. That's where I experience God. Or with my family, that's where I see God. But I don't need to be under God's teaching. I don't need to be involved in community where there's ongoing, continual, perpetual uh, uh, biblical discipline, right? So church discipline, it's not just when you pull a person down front and like, you know, take his shirt off and tell uh, the whole church what he's done wrong. It's when you, you know, just lovingly, hey, man, I noticed that you're really kind of short with your wife. I notice that you're really angry with your children. I notice that you're starting to kind of be focused on these things instead of what you used to be living for. Like those are ways of church discipline, right? So when a person removes himself from that, why would they do that? How would, how would they do that so easily? Because there's alternatives to Christ. It's not that anyone's going to say, I hate Christ. No, in fact, I, I, I think Jesus died for me and I'm okay I just don't have to serve him as he's my master. Oh, yeah, I love him. I mean, I love the idea of if I do face judgment, I can pull out that card and say that I died, uh, that he died for me, and I get to go to heaven. Even though for the last 40 years I had nothing to do with his body, his Bible, prayer. And so what I'm showing you there is there, we're surrounded by this idea of not just anti-opposite Christ, but instead uh, similar and so I think there's going to be this guy that would come, and at first he's going to be very appealing, very, very deceptive. He's probably going to come with lots of answers. So a lot of people would say um, that you know, all, the, all the horrible atrocities in the Middle East that goes on and on and on, he may come um, from either Jewish or Arab descent and then be able to bring some peace and bring in some peace treaties, and everyone's going to be amazed that this guy's going to bring peace between Israel and all these Arab states. But he's deceived many just like Antiochus had done, making deals and doing all these things, except this one's empowered by Satan. So um, just think um, this alternative to Christ or instead of Christ may be more helpful at first because it will seem like this person is doing so much good for humanity. And so 
if you're out there looking on your television or your, your phone for this evil, evil, evil person that's just, you know, and we're thinking like Kim Jong-un, and like, oh, he's just going to just try to kill people as soon as he can, it may be a person who actually goes, hey, Kim, sit down. You can't treat people like this anymore. And he listens or something, and they're like, wow, this guy, he brought a lot of peace. So just know that that's there. Um, the spirit of Antichrist that John writes about is already present in the world, but we believe that probably there will be an eventual fulfillment of one person. So we'll see that in First John. Um, also, how will this probably, how will this person um, be among us now, but also one person later on? So think through this. Um, Satan does not know the exact end time. Satan does not know the end date, right? He doesn't know that in 2055 or, or 3167. Satan does, is not omniscient. He doesn't know the end times. So what Satan has been doing, he's always raising up leaders and influencing. He's always raising up the spirit of Antichrist. He doesn't know when the end will come. You think that there wasn't some, some things going on in heaven or in, in, in our world in, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s? When Hitler and Stalin killed six million Jews, you think there weren't people going, that's got to be him. Um, during the Reformation, they thought it was the Pope. They, they, had, they had reduced Christianity to this list of indulgences and these seven steps that you could take, this works-oriented stuff to where Christ, faith alone and Christ alone was not the answer for salvation anymore. And the Roman Catholic Church had, had come up with all these things where they gained by you giving more money. And so now... The reformers thought the Pope and the Cardinals, they must be Antichrist. And so every group goes through and thinks that. Um, think through Satan always working, trying to influence factors, and always trying to have someone raised up. But there's going to become one that's empowered by Satan himself. As we saw in Revelation, there's three or four places in Revelation that speaks of this one who's going to be tied directly to Satan, and probably even supernatural power, possibly, it says, a mortal wound will hit him, and then he will come back. And so even in, in, in this section, it says, that, listen to this in Revelation 17, the beast that you saw was, and then is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and then was to come again. So there's this idea that that could possibly happen, just people amazed by that. So some things to think through um, on Antichrist, So if, that, if that's helpful. Um, Notice in verses 36 through 9, the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. So the people that would say, this is speaking just about Antiochus, I disagree because this is not what Antiochus did. So I want to show you several factors that separate this guy, uh, uh, what I would say would be a future Antichrist, from Antiochus. So, uh, and I, I have to admit, verse, when I started into this, like verse 36, I'm like, no, this is still talking about Antiochus. And I, I, I look back and look, when you go further biblically and historically, many, many factors. I'm just going to bring up a few. First of all, he will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. That's talking about what, what God has said will happen. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or of the one beloved by women. So um, in this, um, the one beloved by women, 
No one has an answer for that. The only one they could, people could agree on later on would, would be Christ. Later on, he's many other places, extra biblical literature. Women um, just were crazy about him as, as far as his, not like crazy he's hot and like we're attracted to him, want to marry him, but, um, but just like, man, women just saw the compassion he had, the love he had. So there's no way that that was talking about Antiochus. Antiochus also, he broke all ties. Um, Antiochus stayed in the, the, the pantheon gods. He, he brought Zeus into the temple, remember? Um, this guy is going to be different. He is not going to worship the gods of his fathers, it just said. That doesn't fit up with Antiochus. He is also not going to worship um, all, all the gods that, that in the world, the different ones. He's going to set up, in fact, this one is going to say, guess what? I am God. I will pay no attention to the other gods. I'm not bringing other false gods in. I am God. I will be worshipped. Jesus speaks of that in, in Matthew 24 also. So we're going to see that. So very clear places where this guy is not um, Antiochus. He does not remain loyal to the gods of his fathers and to their lineage. He also does not pay any attention to any other gods because he magnifies himself. This is what Jesus and Revelation all say about this future person. Um, looking in Matthew 24, um, this is where Jesus foretells the destruction of this. So Jesus, 33 AD, this is towards the end of his life. He's about to be crucified at the end of his three years of ministry. Jesus, 33 AD, if you go backwards, 200 years is when Antiochus was reigning. So Antiochus reigned from 175 to 164 BC. So why would Jesus be talking about, watch out when you see this, oh, it was 200 years ago? It doesn't make sense. Jesus does this and Paul does this, talking about a future person. So Jesus says this, Jesus left the temple, this is Matthew 24, um, everyone knows Matthew 24 is kind of uh, cryptic in that it, it's kind of a foretelling of future things, uh, and, and he left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to him to point to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them and said, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So here they come going to the temple. Beautiful. Jesus, do you see where we worship? Do you see all these things? And Jesus, I mean, like he's literally going, I'm the temple, idiots. Um, not one stone is going to be on top of one another. It's going to be tore down. What did he say to the Pharisees at one point? You destroy this temple, in three days I'll rebuild it. And they were like, kill the guy. He's claiming to be the temple. And that, that, this took years to build. And he said he will build, rebuild the temple in three days. Let's kill him. And so here's Jesus always going to something deeper. Um, and he shocks them. The temple is not the point. He's going, you've missed it. The temple's not the point. And so then, um, in fact, 33 AD and 72 AD, the temple is destroyed again. So he's not even referring to the temple. In the next sentence, it says in, in verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. And so now you have this switching conversation. Jesus was speaking about the immediate situation. Not one stone's going to sit on top of one another. It's, it's, he's going, in 72 AD, this is going to be destroyed. That, the temple's not the point here. And then changing conversation, they come to him and say, tell us, when will all these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? We're switching things. Jesus answered them, see that no one misleads you. Uh, no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ. They will lead you astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. So, listen to me, crowd here today. Maybe this is for you. 
today, a sojourner. Jesus, your master, says, I know all things. Don't, don't be so alarmed about it. We're going to see the very last part of Daniel. Daniel, protect the book, be faithful. Keep your head down and be faithful. You're going to rest, you're going to die, and then you're going to resurrect. Be faithful with what you've been given. So for us, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Birth pains. So do we look around and go, man, I think that there's some birth pains going on. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, hurricanes. What about people during the wars during the 1500s and 1600s and 1700s? What did they think? Must be towards the end. What about John, the disciple? What about Peter, the disciple? They both thought this must be the end, right? Through history, even 40 years later after Jesus left, they thought this must be the end. What's different for us is we can be encouraged. Many, many prophecies have been fulfilled that had not been fulfilled at their time. Um, even 1940s, Israel back as a nation, right? Some, some big pieces. Um, my point is Jesus is telling them, you stay faithful. We're not giving the details of the end. In Daniel, stay faithful. So what is clear, instead of the details of who, the, the, the timeline, the date, what this government is and what they're trying to do and spending all of our time trying to get on the web and read blogs about all this stuff and, and make it all match up. Like That's all time distracted away from the gospel. It, it's clear. Here are the things that are clear, that there's going to be deception, misleading. There will be many people led astray, many people speaking Christian language, but, but false believers and false teachers that are led astray. Uh, there will be ongoing perpetual wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, atrocities, famines, horrific world events. There will be people fearful and anxious, becoming more and more alarmed because of all the different rumors and conspiracies and events. But these will only be birth pains, and it's going to happen. These must take place. Jesus says then in verse 15, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So Jesus goes on then to say, second time, a new abomination of desolation. So remember, first time was we're bringing Zeus in, the center of the altar, right? Jesus is speaking of a different one. When you see the abomination of um, desolation, I almost said destination, um, desolation. So there's this time, and he's going to come in, and Revelation talks about it. And Jesus goes on in that Matthew uh, chapter 24 there to talk about him setting himself up as God in the temple. So some, some, some clear things there. So Jesus sees this clearly. Uh, Paul in 2 Thessalonians, a very famous section, you probably know in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 6, he brings up the man of lawlessness. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So calm your brothers and sisters if they're being quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So, and he says, either, either by spirit, spiritual forces that are using spiritual warfare to whisper stuff, to, 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 to lead us in ways that we're not supposed to be led, either by a spirit 
um, either by a spoken word, people just talking and telling, here's all these things going on. A letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come or, or is right now. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So again, I have a hard time going, Christians, you get to go. You're, you get to escape, and this is only bad news for Jews. The man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So some very clear things there in this section. Um, First John, he brings up the, the reality that he is... Um, Antichrist is among us. There's many Antichrists, but there will be one Antichrist coming. So that's why I land on the fact that it's not just symbolic, that there will be a future Antichrist. I also land on the fact that uh, lots of scriptures that kind of um, would lead me to believe that the church is not going to be raptured out um, just the, before. They, it's not going to be uh, raptured out before the, um, any kind of tribulation would hit. Um, there's very, very, very many different views on whether the Antichrist will be focusing on Israel, the geographical um, nation state, or God's redeemed people. So I say yes, the church, and yes, Israel. Um, instead of either or, I say it's both and. Um, also, there's different views on whether God's redeemed people, the church, will be raptured up uh, before this type of extreme persecution takes place. In the tribulation period, some believe the church will, will, will go through the period of persecution. Others believe the church will not. I say, yes, believers will probably go through the tribulation. And also, I leave room, and I, I believe there's a part in Romans 11 and a couple places in Revelation that, that towards the end, um, if you go back and read Romans 11, that there will be this time of ingathering of Jews where, where God has said, I've, I've made the Jews jealous by opening up the gospel to you Gentiles, by grafting you in. But, but don't, get, don't get arrogant. If he's treated you this way, how would he treat those who are the original, um, part of the original plant? And so I believe there will be this ingathering of Jews towards the end. I believe believers and those Jews are going to go through some really difficult times. So a question for us is, are you prepared for that? Are you prepared? Um, let's just be honest. Um, We've had three generations of people um, that have went through some really um, easy times, so I call Gaitherland. So if you guys have ever watched the Gaither videos, um, on, on, on the, on, you can look them up in different places. And so it's just a whole bunch of peoples that are that maybe 65 and older, and they're just singing these worship si songs and just having a good time, just smiling, lots of makeup, lots of cool hair, and all this stuff, and they're just, they're just waiting for heaven to come. And so just think through this. Your grandparents... Your, I mean, sorry, your great-grandparents, your grandparents, and your parents lived in a time in a country when, um, first of all, industrialization, capitalism, and moralism ruled. Right? They did. A hundred years there. All across the world in different places, people were being persecuted the whole time. Right? Um, we know even to this day, martyrs every single year, every decade, lots of martyrs and stuff. Um, and in and, and all of that, our 4% of the population, what's hard for me to see is people that would sit in that room in extreme comfort, floating on the blessings of strong, hard work, great pull-up-your-bootstraps, great industry, great um, industrialization, great capitalism. All those, those are blessings from God. They're not evils. 
They can be used as evil, but when we're floating on that grace, and here's what's going on in Sudan. Here's what's going on in China. Hundreds of years. North Korea, South Korea, Japan, all over the Middle East. And we just think that, man, if things start getting bad, God's going to come in and rapture us away. He didn't do that for the last 2,000 years of persecuted people and martyrs. Oh, you mean us in Gaitherland, sitting there singing our songs, just waiting for the sweet by and by? Oh, before us Americans would first face persecution is usually what comes out. And, and that's just not the story of the Bible. And so think through that. Are, are you being maybe more influenced by our uh, American Christianity, thinking because we're floating on God's grace up here and comfort? And I'm just telling you, you better be preparing your kids for maybe a different type of Christianity where following Christ is going to have a cost. So two or three generations, your great-grandparents, your grandparents, and your parents, it was easy, walk an aisle, bow your head, repeat this prayer, raise your hand, you're good. And now 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, we go, man, that's not necessarily true Christianity. Lots, millions upon millions, tens of millions of unbelievers who think they're saved. So the time of the end in Daniel 12 at that time shall arise Michael. Michael always shows up. The great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 24. There's going to arise a time. Michael's coming. It's going to be a time like no other in the history. So some people would say this is speaking specifically to um, Israel because this is going to Daniel, to Israel there. I believe it's changed, and now we're talking about for the, for the whole world. Um, many of those who sh sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Man, Daniel 12 just cuts right through it all. goes to the doctrine of resurrection. Old Testament, it's very rare in the, the Old Testament to ever see um, a very clear depiction of revelation, I mean, of, of, of uh, resurrection. And so here's a picture there's going to be a resurrection. So we have that hope. That's beautiful if you're a child of God. What's interesting is this, this time of trouble that's so horrible, and then this resurrection um, that, that, that's spoken of clearly, this bodily resurrection to everlasting life, it also brings up there's going to be a bodily resurrection to everlasting death. Now, theologically speaking, those are probably going to be two separate times. So if you've ever wondered in your mind, like, hey, if everyone's going to get raptured, what about the, the, the evil people? So remember this, you got souls and you got bodies. So your soul, immediately, the Bible says, to be absent from um, the, the, the world is to be present with the Lord, right? To be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord. So your spirit, your soul, immediately, waking, first waking moment, you're in the presence of the Lord. Jesus to the thief on the cross, you're going to be with me today in paradise. His body, still in the grave somewhere. Our new resurrected bodies are going to be raised up and made new to where they will not face any kind of sin or um, harm anymore. They will be those new bodies, right? And Paul talks about that in Corinthians. With um, the resurrection of the dead, it will probably be a different resurrection at a different time to where they will be raised up. And many people believe that um, even in this section of Scripture, it talks about the 1,290 days. And then there's a jump to 1,335 days in Daniel 12 that maybe that 45 days, everyone's confused by it. Their own, people, one of the biggest guesses is that, that when they have the resurrection of those who are non-believers, that that 45-day period may be him 
doing the great white throne judgment. Those 45 days of depart from me, you never, I never knew you. Depart from me, depart from me, depart from me. I bring that up because Daniel 12 goes from all that we've heard of these crazy stories, and he gets really specific and just goes to that. Um, if we actually believe that every person is going to exist for eternity, either in God's presence or in eternal torment, it might change the way we live. If we believe that I, myself, am either going to be raised up to eternal life and enjoyment of God or eternal torment, car crash today, cancer tomorrow, death that no one wakes up thinking that's going to happen today, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, your relatives. And Daniel 12 says this is what's going to happen. If we, if we live with that in light in front of us, it might change our priorities. It might change what we think about. So um, let me ask you, are you prepared? Are you preparing your faith, your life, your family to where if in two, five years, five to ten years, following Jesus would look much different? Are you prepared for that? Where following Jesus looks different. So we're in this phase with our kids. So everyone thinks that you know, when they're all like from five years and, and younger, it's like, oh, this is horrible. This is like we're just sitting all the time. Like this is so tough. This is this is rough. And they get to like the five to like eleven age. It's like, man, they're kind of doing. They can buckle their own seats. They can they can take their own baths and stuff. They can cook their own meals and start their own fires. I'm joking. And so uh, it kind of gets easier. And then you get into the teenage years and you're going, man, we're preparing them to walk off on their own now to make their choices. And so guess what? Your kids at 5 through 11 don't have all the temptations that they're going to have thrown at them when they're 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, right? Because you probably experienced that, right? Things were different when you were like 0 to 5, 5 to 11. When you look at this, we're going to have people that are um, literally going to go into these next years as culture shifting. Christianity is going to be much different in America, in Gaitherland. It's changing. Are you preparing your own faith and your children to be able to stand with all kinds of temptations? Not just something that's like, oh, alcohol or porn or something like that. No, no. When everyone around them cares nothing about church. When church is ridiculous and stupid and this book is ridiculous and stupid. And we all said the thing, oh, you know, at college, you get to college, and man, they, they make a mockery of the Bible, and they really challenge you. There's a lot of atheists. What if some people start rising up that have more peace, more, more beautiful things happening that are clearly anti-God? And people are just, oh, that's the way things are working. So moral, um, therapeutic um, theism, just, just, that, just that, that idea. Man, it, it's, it's a, that man-centeredness. Um, so, so that will probably become one of the, the biggest things. Um, Daniel 5 through 7, he says, I looked, and behold, two others stood, and on one, one on uh, one side of the stream and one on the bank of the stream. Someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And he raises his right hand and his left hand up to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time times and time and a half, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. So everyone goes, is that Jesus? We've got two angels, one on this side of the river, one on that side of the river. Is that Jesus floating in the middle? It's not important. 
He raises up his hands and says, um, to the one who lives forever. So as far as that goes, does it matter if that's Jesus or if that's an, another angel? He's, it seems like he's talking to someone who lives forever, that, talking about maybe someone in a higher authority than him. But the message is very clear. This is going to get bad. Um, the shattering of the power of the holy people. Holy people can only be angels, or it, it could be Israel, or it could be the church. So in that, um, it's not as important as this Jesus floating. What's more important is God, just like in chapter 11, was saying, Israel, prepare for Antiochus. I believe the rest of chapter 11 and then 12 is going, my church and Israel, prepare. It's going to be some difficult times coming forward. He ends it with great great hope. Daniel just says, after all this, I heard and didn't understand. Oh Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th day. Very confusing. And then Daniel, go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Daniel would never get to see his people, Israel, redeemed and pulled out. Daniel would never see... Um, restoration and in full revival take place among his people. Since Daniel was a young man in his teens, he'd been taken away as a captive. His life trajectory about what following God would, would, would equate to and what following God and obedience and faithfulness would equal never works out. Daniel, keep faithful. Go your way. Stay faithful in what you're doing. You know this path and you will die, you will rest and you will be raised up, and you will stand up again. So what do we take away from um, this Daniel? As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, um, just some confusing things there at the end. A lot of people want to know, what's the 1290? What's the 1335? Especially, uh, can I be one of the blessed ones that make it to 1335? Like, what, what do I got to do to do that? Um, you may be martyred. You may be killed. You may bail on Christ. A lot of people who think they wouldn't do very easily over much smaller things. Um, here at Sojourn, we uh, want to look at um, the Lord's Supper as this thing where we focus every week on um, the, the, the body and the blood of Christ. And so um, when we think about the whole book of Daniel that we went through, 18 weeks, um, I want to just do, as the Lord's Supper, just some walkaways for you to evaluate where your heart's at with Christ. Uh, we practice open communion, meaning that um, if you're a, a believer who's been baptized, in good standing with uh, another church. You're not like running from church discipline and you're, you're uh, just running in sin. Or if you're just in pattern sin, that if, if you're not in those situations, that, that you can join with us. You don't have to be a member here to partake of the Lord's Supper. Um, we always want to be celebrating it, but we also want it to be sobering. And so Daniel is a very sobering book. If this book was a, a preparation and warning for Israel, for the destructive leaders and oppressors they would face, and now we're living in the end times, so what areas of preparation and discipleship do you need to consider in light of God's Word? What areas of training in, in righteousness and discipleship? Are, are you in God's Word? Are you a person of prayer? Are you a person who's in community where you have some people that speak into your life that have the right to do that? 
Are you a person that's seeking the Lord and, 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 and pursuing Him? If preparation for adversity and persecution is necessary for upcoming days, according to this and Jesus in the New Testament, are you a person learning specific faithfulness on the necessities? Or are you a person being distracted and consumed by all these other things that really don't matter? So if you haven't read, you may not know, pastors read this stuff. What's been happening since COVID is these people are so distracted on all this stuff and they're missing what's being set right in front of them. It's, it's, there's being books written on it right now. Or are you learning specific faithfulness on the necessities? A humbled heart, uh, listening to the word. What kinds of persecution or spiritual oppression might you or your family or the church face? By the way, that has been common for centuries of Christ's church. Centuries of his church that we haven't had to face. Why should these not surprise nor captivate all your energy or attention? Are you remaining faithful? Daniel's faithfulness was focused on his time alone with God in prayer and God's word, great trust in life and community with his fellow Jews. Which of those areas do you need growth in, and who's the one person who you might bring along on that journey or that path? Just one person this next year. Man, let's get together and just once a week open up the Bible, read, pray. And then what has God through his word and through what we know Christ has accomplished for you and what the Spirit has guided us through, brought to you in your heart and mind through this journey. So, so what has God the Father showed us in His Word? What has Jesus accomplished for you that you know that He's accomplished um, in your place, substituted? And then what has the Spirit guided you into as we've gone through this um, journey through Daniel? I want to give you a couple of moments just to pray and respond to that. If you're, a, if you're a believer, consider that as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. If you're not a believer... Um, um, it could be someone who thinks that they prayed the prayer before or someone who's just not ever surrendered their life to Christ. We use this time to say, hey, don't partake of these little cups with us of the Lord's Supper, but instead cry out to God for mercy, for forgiveness, for new life, for the opportunity at new obedience. This is the time to cry out to him for that salvation that he offers. Daniel was very clear and comes down to the very pointed um, direction that there will be those raised to life and those raised to eternal damnation. It's not a joke. It's not a fairy tale. He's been accurate and he's been faithful. He offers us grace in the gospel today. So consider that. I'll give you a couple moments.